Good morning. My name is Greg Toddick. I will be reading to you this morning from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you want to follow along with me now in your Bibles or electronic devices, now's the time to get them out. Or if you want to be like most people, just follow along with me on the screens. That's Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, I'm going to take a risk here this morning. Uh, After being here at Mercer Island Covenant for a few months, I'm realizing more and more, and it happened again yesterday at the picnic, that this is an aviation-centric church. The the number of people that are somehow involved with aviation or retired from aviation, it's it's amazing. I met a a retired Delta pilot yesterday, and and once we met each other, we couldn't stop talking. I'm going to give a little aviation analogy here, but I'm taking a risk when I do this because some of you who are engineers and who are airline captains and stuff, you're going to scoff at what I say. For the rest of you that may not be so aviation or technically inclined, I'm going to give you something that you can impress your friends with. So this is, this is for your sake, and it will lead into the message today. And it actually has a, a bit of a, a somber start to it because it came out of this airline uh, incident that just happened down in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. We're all aware of that situation, and as the details come out, some of us who are uh, in, in some way aviation-centric, we start analyzing it in our own minds. What happened? that caused that. You know, thank God there were so few casualties. It could have been so much worse. But nevertheless, there was quite a, quite a failure that took place there in San Francisco. And as I was going through that in my own head, I came back to three basic concepts, three basic thoughts, three realities that exist in aviation. And whenever there's some kind of an incident like happened in San Francisco, you can believe that one of those three or possibly more than one were ignored by the pilots. Okay, so here's the three. You don't have to write them down. They're one word each. You can remember these and then impress your friends with them later. It's air, gravity, and power. Air, 
gravity, and power. What do I mean? When that pilot was coming in to land in San Francisco there, he didn't have enough air underneath him. Okay, we say he got too low. He wasn't, he wasn't alert to the fact that he didn't have enough air below him. Gravity, the great enemy of every airplane that's in flight. Gravity is forever trying to pull the airplane down to the ground, and gravity is no respecter of where the airplane is. And that pilot of that airplane was not alert to the fact that the force of gravity got greater than that airplane's ability to overcome gravity and maintain itself up in the air. Gravity won. The plane went down too early. And the third basic reality is power. Every airplane has to have power. It it couldn't fly without power. It would be a, a glider if it didn't have power. But power is not infinite in an airplane. It has a finite amount of power. And in that situation, in that configuration, the airplane didn't have enough power to get out of the situation that the pilot had allowed it to get into. So when one or more of those three basic fundamentals of flight is ignored or or the pilot becomes distracted where he's not paying attention to those fundamentals, the results are often what we saw the other day in San Francisco. When the pilot can stay alert to and embrace those three realities, he will probably enjoy a safe flight and a normal landing. Now, why do I say that today? Because I want us to look at three spiritual realities that are every bit as foundational as those three aviation realities are to the pilot. These three spiritual realities for us, if we are alert to them, if we respect them, if we don't ignore them, we will live the life that God has for us, not only in this life, but in the life after. But we ignore them to our own peril. So I'd like to introduce those three priorities to us in our time together this morning. But first, I must start with a story that comes out of the time when uh, Linda and I were missionaries in Venezuela. And uh, we lived in a tiny little provincial town that was a long ways from anywhere. And you had to work hard to get there. So we were shocked one Sunday afternoon where there was a knock on our front door. And I opened it. And to my surprise, there stood my brother who lived in California. And my brother was single at the time, and he was a free spirit, and I had no idea he was traveling, and he showed up on our doorstep down in Venezuela. We were excited to have him with us for two weeks. We had great fun together. And on one particular day, I was able to take my brother with me on my flight schedule. There was enough room in the plane, had an empty seat, and so my brother accompanied me on the day's flights. Our furthest destination was a tiny little Yanomami Indian village on the Brazilian border up in the highlands called Parima. And we had a load of supplies and medicine and food for the missionaries that were working up there. Doing, they were doing Bible translation and church planting up there. And so we landed there on that airstrip. And as we landed, the missionary came out rather quickly to the plane. And he said, Kevin, you've got some medicine on this plane. I need it for one of the indigenous men who's very ill. I have to take it and give him an injection right away. And I said, yeah, I know, Danny. It's in the back. And I got it out for him and gave it to him. And he said, forgive me for not helping you unload the plane. I've got to go give this injection. I said, go ahead. i got plenty of time. And then he invited my brother to go along with. He said, do you want to go with just to see how the Yanomami people live? My brother said, sure. That's better than helping my brother unload the airplane. 
So he takes off with the missionary and leaves me to unload the plane, which was fine. And in about 30 minutes, they returned. Now, I was very curious as to how my brother was going to respond to landing in this Stone Age village up there. These people were as primitive as it gets. And my brother grew up in suburban San Francisco. And so when they got back, I said, hey, Grady, what, what was it like? What, what did you see? What did you experience over there? He said, oh, man, it was, it was really cool. Danny pointed all this stuff out to me and told me how these people live and stuff. But he said something really weird happened while we were over there. I said, really? What was that? He said, well, this little rain shower moved through the area while we were over in the village. I said, yeah, I know. We got wet over here, too, while you were in the village. But he said, but listen what happened. Now, these, these people live in a, a communal village about the size of this building, and it's open in the center, and they live around the perimeter under a thatched roof. And he said, as soon as the rain started, all of the Yanomami folks ran back and got underneath the protection of the thatched roof, like you would expect. And Danny and my brother did the same. They stepped back underneath. But then one man ran right out into the center, Yanomami indigenous man. He ran into the center, and he started stooping down and grabbing hands full of dirt, throwing it up in the air. As the dirt fell back down and got on him and fell back to the ground, he did it again. And the rain was pouring down, and this man was grabbing hands full of dirt, throwing them up in the air. And my brother watched that for a couple minutes, and finally he said to Danny, what's up with that guy? Why is he doing that? And Danny said, oh, he's giving an offering to God. My brother's like, what? He said, yeah, you see, these people believe that the thunder is God angry at them, and that's God shouting at them. And this driving rain that's coming down is God showing his displeasure for something these people have or haven't done. And so this man, in his thinking, it's like, well, God's up there. He's in the clouds. He's in the heavens. He's wherever. He's up there, and he doesn't have any dirt. So I'm going to give God some earth as a sacrifice to him. And maybe that will influence God and maybe he'll change his mind and maybe he won't be angry at us anymore. And when Danny explained that to my brother, he chuckled. My brother chuckled. And Danny said, oh, no, this is very serious for them. And he said, and by the way, watch, it'll work. Now my brother's really confused, okay? The Christian missionary is telling him that throwing dirt in the sky will appease God and calm him down. But sure enough, the thunderstorm moved off as quickly as it came in. My brother knew why, because that's the way little summer thunder showers are in the tropics, and Danny knew why. But Danny said to my brother, you go try to convince that guy that his throwing dirt up as an offering to God didn't change God's mind. Now, for as many things as that Gianomami Indian man had wrong in his thinking, he got one thing right, and that was the fact that God is that God is above. Now, when I say that, I know that some of you right now are thinking, oh, wait a minute, Pastor Kevin. We know that God is everywhere. Scripture teaches us God is omnipresent. That's right. I'm not disagreeing with that. But hold on to that thought for a moment as we look at a few scriptures that will back up the fact that this Yanomami man believed that God was up there. Truth number one, principle number one that I want us to pay attention to is the fact that God is above. Now, it wasn't always that way. For those of us that are familiar with the creation account in the Bible and the book of Genesis, we know that when God created the first humans, that he hung out with them. God was 
with his creation. He walked with them and talked with them and spent time with them in the garden. But unfortunately, that situation didn't last very long. Scripture tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They said, no, God, we know better than you. And they made some choices. And the effects of that was that sin then entered into the world. Sin entered into the relationship between God and his creation. And it caused a fracture in that relationship. And from that point forward... God wasn't with his creation the same way that he was when he walked in the garden with them. And from that point in Scripture, we see a positional change that took place. From that point forward, God is above. God is up. Let me just share a couple examples. A few chapters later in the book of Genesis, most of us are familiar with the Tower of Babel account in Genesis 11, where God had told the people to scatter and fill the earth, and they said, no, we know better. We want to do it our own way. We're sticking together. We're going to make a big city. And God says this in Genesis 11, verse 5. He says, let us go down and confuse their language. God is up. He's above. He's observing what's going on with his people. He says, no, I have to go down and intervene. Exodus 34, when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt into the land that he promised for them, they stop along the way, and God invites Moses to come up a mountain to meet with him. And here's what we read in Exodus 34. It says that God descended in the cloud to the top of that mountain. He came down from above to where he could meet with Moses. The psalmist in Psalm 144 says, Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. God is up. God is above. We see the same thing in the New Testament when Christ goes public with his ministry and he's baptized in the Jordan River. We read in Luke chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit of God descended from above and came down to where Jesus was. And then the people said they heard a voice from heaven speaking and it was the voice of God the Father speaking to Jesus. God was above. And one final example from James chapter 1, one of the latter books in the New Testament, James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So this is why I can say fairly confidently that Scripture portrays God being above. And that brings us to the second truth is that we're not. God is up and we're not. Every one of those scriptures that talks about God being above is in relation to us being below. We're down here, God is up there, and there's this void in between God and us. And I think that what God has done for us in these passages of scripture that point out these two truths is he's given us a visual. He's giving us a picture of the human condition. This is reality. The separation that took place in the Garden of Eden, that that, that sin has, has broken the relationship between God and us and has left us in this predicament here. God is up. We are not. I think most of us have had experiences with people who wouldn't call themselves Christians or even necessarily religious, but they still understand this concept. Have you ever had anybody say to you when they find out that maybe you attend church or or, or you're a Christian, they'll say something like this to you, hey, will you put in a good word for me to the man upstairs? You know, people, people kind of think in those terms, God is up. That's our reality. 
But that certainly was never God's original design that this separation would be in place. But since people are generally aware of this scenario that we have on this slide here, all down through the ages, people have tried to work hard at narrowing this gap of reconnecting with God. And so what we see happening is that, that humanity comes up with these, these systems, these, these practices to try to reconnect with God. And we call them religions. A, a religion or a religious system is, is humanity's attempt to try to reconnect with God. Now, in any particular religious system, you're going to find there's four words at play here, and they're on the next slide here. These four words always come into play in religion, and here's how religion works. The, the people are sensing the separation from God, and they want to do something about it, so it makes sense that obedience would be the thing to do. If they can try to figure out what God wants, and if they can obey, do the best they can to obey, perhaps... God will accept them. Obedience hopefully would lead to God's acceptance. Or on the other side, work. If I just work really hard, if I, if I do everything I can that's good and avoid everything that's bad and just work, do my best, perhaps I will earn God's favor. And on this next slide here, there's little arrows that point up. You see the, the action is upward. It's, it's people attempting to reconnect with God in the hope that he will accept them, in the hope that his favor will be upon them. If you were with us about three weeks ago when Pastor Peter pushed the pause button on our Romans series, the last sermon was from Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul totally debunks the whole religious idea. Because he says in chapter 3, verse 10 of Romans, Apostle Paul says, There is no one righteous, not even one. And the little arrows going up there, that's our righteousness. That's our self-righteousness. It's trying to make ourselves righteous in God's sight. And Paul says, don't waste your time. There is no one righteous, not even one. And then 10 verses later, in, in Romans 3, verse 20, Paul says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Keeping the law, following the rules, working hard, obeying, has never reconnected anybody with God. And in essence, that human effort from the ground up is just like that Yanomami man grabbing hands full of dirt and throwing it up in the air. All it does is fall back down on our heads. This is religion. And religion does nothing to close the gap between us and God. But what if there was an alternative to religion? Thankfully, there is. That's the good news. If the, the first point is that God is up and the second point is that we're not, the third one is that God does something about it. God does something about it. That takes us to our passage in Exodus chapter 3 that Greg read a few minutes ago, and I just want to relook at two verses in that passage where God is speaking to Moses. He's come down to have a conversation with him, and here's what we read in verses 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. I have come down to rescue them. The solution is not humanity working harder and obeying more and trying to earn God's favor. No, the solution can only come from above. And God says to Moses, I know exactly what's going on down there. I know the needs of my people. I have compassion on them. So I have come down to do something about it. In that passage, God uses the word rescue. I don't know if you noticed or not, but Chris picked out all kinds of hymns and songs this morning that had the word rescue in it. Uh, Because I want to make a point here this morning regarding that word rescue. When God says, I have come down to rescue them, he's using the word differently than we tend to use it in our common language today. We use the word rescue far too lightly. I may be coming into the office some morning, and maybe I get here a few minutes before the door is unlocked, and I've walked up to the door, and I've got some books and stuff in my arms, and they're both full, and my keys are in my pocket, and I come up to the door, and I push it with my foot. Oh, it's locked. And so I have this dilemma. How do I get in? Can I fish my keys out without putting my stuff down? There's no place to put my stuff down. And as I'm trying to figure this dilemma out, I hear a voice behind me. It's not the voice of God. It's the voice of Pastor Julie. And she says, oh, don't worry, Kevin. I've got my keys. I'll get the door for you. And she unlocks the door and opens it. And I say, thanks, Julie. You rescued me. Now, seriously, did she rescue me? No. Did she do a kind thing? Absolutely. Was it helpful to me? Of course it was. But I'd have figured out a way to get through the door if she had not shown up. The definition of rescue I have on the screen here is the one I'd like us to think of whenever we see the word rescue in Scripture. When someone does for you what you could never do for yourself. And when God says to the Israelites, I have come down to rescue you, it's an indication that they were completely helpless. They're completely without hope on their own. Linda and I lived in uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains of uh, eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina for a while, and the Appalachian Trail goes right through that area. And I picked up the local paper one evening, and I, ha- and I read the account of a, of a young woman who was hiking alone on the Appalachian Trail in the spring right through our area. And this just happened a few days before this article. And it was a time of the season when the ground was still damp, and there's a lot of wind that time of year in the springtime. And she was hiking through the woods by herself, and it was noisy in the woods because of all the wind rustling the leaves and the trees and stuff. And she never heard a tree behind her that was uprooted and quietly fell down and hit her and knocked her off the trail and pinned her to the ground. And she was panicked at first. The the wind was knocked out of her, and then she realized that she could draw some shallow breaths. And as she felt her fingers and toes, she realized she was still intact. She couldn't tell that she was bleeding anywhere. And she thought, well, I'm in a predicament here. I've got a tree lying on my back. And so she thought, how can I get get out? And the first thought she had was, I'll unstrap my pack and I'll slip out between my pack and the the ground below me. 
but one arm was pinned underneath her, and with the other one, she couldn't reach under to unstrap her pack. So she said, well, that's not going to work. So then she thought, I'll scoop the dirt out from underneath me. If I can just scoop a little dirt out and create some space, then I can slip out from underneath this log. And so she did that a little bit, but she found that right below the dirt was, was, was a hard rock surface, and she couldn't scoop it out. And she tried to figure out if she had something in her pack that she could reach and get out that might help get her out of there, but she couldn't. And after several hours, she finally realized, I can't do a thing about my situation. I have a tree laying on my back, and I can't do anything about it. Now, thankfully for her, she was on the Appalachian Trail, that is fairly well hiked. And some hours later, a group of hikers came along, and in the distance they saw a tree laying across the trail. And they thought, oh, look, a tree blew down. And as they got closer, they saw legs sticking out from underneath this tree. And, and they rushed up there, and they found she was still conscious, and they talked with her, and they got some limbs that they could use as levers, and they pried the weight of that tree up, and some of them just eased her out from under the tree. And then they it kind of did a diagnosis, no broken bones that they could find, helped her to her feet. They carried her pack for her. They got her out to medical help, and, and thankfully, she was okay. But she needed to be rescued. If they hadn't come along, that would have been where her life would have ended. When somebody does for you what you could never do for yourself, that's when you get rescued. The Israelites had been 400 plus years in Egypt. And don't think for a minute that they hadn't tried to get out. The the Jewish people are very resourceful, and I'm sure some of them had died trying, but they hadn't been able to be successful. 400 years later, they were still captives in Egypt, and God said, I have come down to rescue you, to do for you what you could never do for yourselves. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians uses the word rescue in a similar light, and I think we've got that scripture up here, Colossians chapter 3, or 1, 13 to 14. And Paul is speaking of something that's happened in the past. He's talking of God, and he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul knew that we spiritually were completely helpless. He gets a little graphic in this passage here when he talks about the fact that, that, that um, we needed to be rescued. We were in the dominion of darkness, and God rescued us, and he used the exact same means of rescue as he did in the Old Testament with the Israelites. He came down. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves by sending his son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to come down and become the agent of our rescue. And in going to the cross and in sacrificing his life, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He didn't rescue us for our convenience. He didn't rescue us for our comfort. He rescued us because we were lost. We were helpless and hopeless without his rescue. 
One final scripture, again, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, he says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Just look at this verse for a minute and see what the need is. Paul uses the word dead there. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And a dead person can't do anything for themselves. But look at everything that God does for us. He says, because of his great love for us. That's God reaching down to us. That's God's love towards us. God who is rich in mercy. God's mercy coming down from above to us who were desperate for God's mercy. He made us alive. That's God reaching down to us. All of the action begins with God, and it's all focused on us. This is what we call the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel. A needy humanity who can do nothing about their condition and a God of compassion and love who does everything that they need to bring us back into relationship with him. Now, the final slide here, um, I I call this um, our response to gospel, our response to gospel. And you'll notice that it's got the same four words that we looked at a moment ago when we were talking about religion. So, So how can that be? How does that fit together? Let me just explain that a little bit, because gospel is completely the, the reverse of religion, where in religion, all the effort started with us. It was, it was us trying to obey. It was us trying to work in the hopes of earning God's favor or God's acceptance. But in gospel, as we said, all the effort is down. So it starts at the top. It starts with God saying, I accept you. I, I accept you not because of what you've done. No, he says, I accept you because what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. So the acceptance starts from above and it flows down to us. And what is our response to a God who accepts us, a God who has rescued us? Our response should be obedience to him. Why would we not want to live in obedience to a God who has rescued us from our helpless and our hopeless condition? We don't obey God to gain anything from God. No, we obey as a joyful response to what God has already done for us. God's favor is upon us. God's love is ours because of what Jesus Christ did. And our response to that is work. Not work to gain anything or earn anything from God, but but no, we want to be a part of this. If he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, we're part of the family now. We're part of God's family. The the relationship is reestablished, and why would we not want to be part of the action in God's family? Why wouldn't we want to serve? Not so he'll love us more. That could never happen. But as a joyful response to what God has done for us. In summary, religion says, I obey to earn God's acceptance. I work to get his favor. But this is an endless pursuit. It's a treadmill that has no end to it because we never know if we've been good enough. 
Gospel, on the other hand, says God fully accepts me because of the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in response, I choose to obey him. Because of God's love for me, he rescued me into his family. Therefore, I joyfully participate in the work of the family of God. What we do is never to gain something from God. It's a response to what he's already done for us. Now, now some of you here today may say, that kind of makes sense, but maybe you've never made that decision to accept the gospel, God's love downward towards you. Maybe you've never embraced that. Maybe you've never received that. So your appropriate response is to receive that gift that God has given to you. And for those of us that call ourselves Christians that are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our response is to be very alert to the fact that we have these tendencies to still try to be religious, to try to do things and think that God is going to love us a little more if we do this, or God's going to accept us a little more if we do this. And that's a trap that we don't want to fall into. We're going to talk about that a little more next week because actually I've got two Sundays. And so this is just the first of of two Sundays. I started with three spiritual realities at the beginning of this message. God is up, we're not, and he's done something about it. That is incredibly good news for each one of us. And we need to rejoice in what he has done for us and live in that place, that joyful place of response to that gospel. Next week, when we get back together, I'd like to explore just a little bit is why we are so prone to forget these three truths. They seem so basic. They seem so easy. And, you know, we could say the same thing for the airline pilot that forgets some of those truths that seem so simple and so basic. But when we forget them, it's to our own peril. And I'd like us to explore that a little more together next week. So hope you can join with us again, and uh, we'll see what God has to say for us. Let me just close us in prayer. Uh, God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for the practicality of your word. And I just pray, Lord, for each one of us today, no matter where we are, that we will receive these truths of, of, of where you are and where we're not, and what you have done about it, and that we would respond appropriately. God, I just pray for any that are here today that have never made a response to the gospel, an initial response to the gospel, and I just pray you'd draw them one step closer to you, even today. And for all of us, Father, that we will continue to live in the light of the gospel, that we will be gospel people, understanding we have tendencies towards religion, but would you please just point those out to us so we can live fully, in the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.